You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Chapter 1. Statism, Our Condition We are coerced by our fellow human beings. Since they have the ability to choose to do otherwise, our condition need not be this. Coercion is immoral, inefficient, and unnecessary for human life and fulfillment. Those who wish to be supine as their neighbors prey on them are free to so choose. This manifesto is for those who choose otherwise, to fight back. Well, if we can agree that immoral and, oh, by the way, unnecessary and inefficient coercion is what we are fighting back against, the question is how do we go about fighting back against that coercion and what does it look like if we successfully do so? Those are the questions on the table today for this, the 309th episode of the Corbett Report podcast, Solutions Agorism. And I am your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan on the 19th day of October, 2015. Well, we have just been listening to, for those who don't know, the introductory words to the New Libertarian Manifesto, first published in 1980 and written by the somewhat pompously named Samuel Edward Konkin III, who preferred to go by the much less pompous S.E.K. III, or simply Sam, and who will here and after be referred to as Konkin. And if you do not know the name of Sam Konkin, that is an historical injustice that I hope this podcast will go at least part of the way towards rectifying today, but I can almost guarantee you that if you do move in the types of circles, online alternative media circles that the Corbett Report moves in, I'm sure you will have run into at least a few of his words. He coined quite a few words and phrases that are important to the types of topics that we discuss here. For example, have you ever heard someone refer to the idea that we need just a little bit of that coercive government mafia to protect us from the bad guys, referred to as minarchism, because minarchism was a word coined by Sam Konkin? Uh, have you ever heard of the Koch brothers' insidious influence on the libertarian movement and their use of their vast wealth to try to steer that movement in certain directions, referred to as the Coctopus? Because again, that was Konkin. Have you uh, ever heard of the word partyarchy? If not, you should. I think that's a very important for a word and uh, a very apt one. And uh, Konkin defined that as the anti-concept of pursuing libertarian ends through statist means, especially political parties. That's right, we can vote our way into freedom. Yay! Partyarchy. I like that. Well, yes, not only was he a coiner of those words, he was a coiner of, or a, an articulator of a concept which is very important and is the titular concept of today's episode, agorism. But before we get into that, let's start with just a little bit of background on Sam Konkin, uh, who was born in... Uh, it's interesting, I knew he was Canadian before starting into this episode, but before getting really into this research in earnest in preparation for this episode, I did not know he was the good kind of Canadian, i.e. Western Canadian. Uh, he was born in Saskatchewan in 1947, or as the Americans insist on pronouncing it... Saskatchewan. <clears throat> he uh, grew up in Edmonton, and, well, no one's perfect, and he attended the University of Alberta, where he headed the Young Social Credit League, obviously before he was introduced to libertarianism, which he was eventually introduced to through Robert Lefebvre by way of the science fiction works of Robert Heinlein, specifically uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. An interesting way of getting into this philosophy, but that's how he arrived at it. And by 1969, he attended the Young Americans for Freedom Convention in St. Louis in 1969, the, well, famous or infamous uh, 1969 convention of the YAF in St. Louis, where the young libertarians were expelled uh, and the modern era of the libertarian movement really began. Uh, he moved to New York in 1970 to be closer to the Rothbard libertarian circles that were happening in Manhattan at that time, and he began publishing the New Libertarian Notes. And in the mid-1970s, he moved out to Los Angeles, where he continued with New Libertarian Notes, which became New Libertarian Weekly and finally morphed into the New Libertarian. And in 1980, he published the New Libertarian Manifesto, where he expanded on this central idea of agorism. So, now... Obviously, the first question that most people will have is, what is agorism? 
And that's a perfectly good question to have when we're approaching this subject. But I think we have to caution against pithy or uh, totalizing definitions in one or two sentences because they can often lead people astray. Case in point, uh, when confronting this word agorism, most people will want to know, you know, what, what is the definition of this word? Where does it come from? And they will inevitably be told that this comes from the Greek word agora. And they will inevitably be told that agora just means Greek marketplace, basically. But that in itself is, I think, too limiting a definition and gives, as a result, the wrong concept, the wrong idea, the wrong image of what agorism actually relates to. Uh, agorism, I don't think, is simply an economic concept that's simply about the marketplace. And I think once you actually understand what agora really was, I think you can expand your image of what agorism is all about. So taking our uh, taking a bit of nuance on this definition from the International Dictionary of Historic Places Southern Europe, uh, we learn that agorism uh, refers to the agora, and the agora was an integral part of the Greek city. It was the center of social, cultural, and political life, and the importance of the Athenian agora reportedly dates back to the time of the hero king Theseus, who, according to Greek mythology, was the founder of Athens. And it goes on in this passage, which I'll allow you to read in your own time, to talk about the central importance of the agora to Greek society and to the Greek city. It was not just a marketplace. Marketplace was just one of the subsidiary of the many types of activities that went on there, from athletic and artistic events to public and social life. It was a meeting place for people and an exchange of ideas and a place where things happened. That is the agora, and I think that's the image we have to have in mind when we think of agorism. Because, again, I think pithy one-sentence definitions tend to do a disservice to concepts like this, which are more nuanced and not so easily encapsulated, can be butchered by words as much as they can be elaborated on. And I think Konkin himself had a, a wonderful little line in the uh, Agorist Primer, first published, first circulated as a Xerox copy in 1986 and eventually published in hardback and paperback editions after his death in 2004. Uh, he had a wonderful little line where he called out the thieves of the intellect who attempt to pervert or steal concepts through these types of two limiting definitions. Um, and then he goes on to give... Uh, a definition of agorism. He gives several definitions, actually, but this is uh, probably the simplest one and the one that we will uh, begin our focus on. He says, Agorism is the consistent integration of libertarian theory with counter-economic practice. An agorist is one who acts consistently for freedom and in freedom. All right, well, right off the bat, I think there are two important things that we can see just from glancing at that definition, one of which is that agorism is fundamentally about the combination of theory and practice. It is not about the separation or the separate uh, uh, focus on one or the other. It is about the combination. And also it stresses consistency between thought and action. These are two very important points, which we shall be returning to shortly. But first, again, we are faced with the problems of definition, even within that definition. Agorism is the consistent integration of libertarian theory with counter-economic practice. Well, I can think of two questions right off the start that are pretty fundamental to this. First of all, what libertarian theory does Konkin refer to? Because, of course, that's been articulated many different ways by many different people at many different times. And again, libertarian is one of those words that has a lot of ideological baggage uh, because of the di different ways that people have associated with it in the past. And then, of course, the other question is, what is counter-economics? Well, fret not. Konkin himself provides some idea of these uh, concepts in his work, of course, and they are elaborated at great length, for example, in the New Libertarian Manifesto and the Agorist Primer, both of which will be, of course, linked in the show notes for this episode. Let's start with the point of liber libertarian theory. What formulation of libertarian theory is Konkin referring to, and we'll take our cue from the New Libertarian Manifesto. To combat coercion, one must understand it. More importantly, one must understand what one is fighting for as much as what one is fighting against. Blind reaction goes in all directions negative to the source of oppression and disperses opportunity. Pursuit of a common goal focuses the opponents and allows formation of coherent strategy and tactics. Diffuse coercion is optimally handled by local, immediate self-defense. 
Though the market may develop larger scale businesses for protection and restoration, random threats of violence can only be dealt with roots of mysticism and delusions planted deep in the victim's thinking, requires a grand strategy and a cataclysmic point of historical singularity. Revolution. Such an institution of coercion, centralizing immorality, directing theft and murder, and coordinating oppression on a scale inconceivable by random criminality exists. It is the mob of mob, mobs, the gang of gangs, the conspiracy of conspiracies. It has murdered more people in a few recent years than all the deaths in history before that time. It has stolen in a few recent years more than all the wealth produced in history to that time. It has deluded, for its own survival, more minds in a few recent years than all the irrationality of history to that time. Our enemy, the state. In the 20th century alone, war has murdered more than all previous deaths. Taxes and inflation have stolen more than all wealth previously produced. And the political lies, propaganda, and above all, quote, education, have twisted more minds than all the superstition prior. Yet through all the deliberate confusion and obfuscation, the thread of reason has developed fibers of resistance to be woven into the rope of execution for the state, libertarianism. Where the state divides and conquers its opposition, libertarianism unites and liberates. Where the state beclouds, libertarianism clarifies. Where the state conceals, libertarianism uncovers. Where the state pardons, libertarianism accuses. Libertarian libertarianism elaborates an entire philosophy from one simple premise. Initiatory violence or its threat, that is coercion, is wrong, i.e. immoral, evil, bad, supremely impractical, etc., and is forbidden. Nothing else is. Libertarianism, as developed to this point, discovered the problem and defined the solution the state versus the market. The market is the sum of all voluntary human action. If one acts non-coercively, one is part of the market. Thus did economics become part of libertarianism. Libertarianism investigated the nature of man to explain his rights, deriving from non-coercion. It immediately followed that man, or woman, child, Martian, etc., had an absolute right to this life and other property, and to no other. Thus did objective philosophy become part of libertarianism. Libertarianism asked why society was not libertarian now and found the state, its ruling class, its camouflage, and the heroic historians striving to reveal the truth. Thus did revisionist history become part of libertarianism. Psychology especially as developed by Thomas Sass as counter-psychology, was embraced by libertarians seeking to free themselves from both state restraint and self-imprisonment. Seeking an art form to express the horror potential of the state and extrapolate the many possibilities of liberty, libertarianism found science fiction already in the field. From the political, economic, philosophical, psychological, historic, and artistic realms, the partisans of liberty saw a whole, integrating their resistance with others elsewhere, and they came together as their consciousness became aware. Thus did libertarians become a movement. The libertarian movement looked around and saw the challenge. Everywhere, our enemy, the state, from the ocean's depths past arid outposts to the lunar surface in every land, people, tribe, nation, and individual mind. Some sought immediate alliance with other opponents of the power elite to overthrow the state's present rulers. Some sought immediate confrontation with the state's agents. Some pursued collaboration with those in power who offered less oppression for votes. And some dug in for long-term enlightenment of the populace to build and develop the movement. Everywhere, a libertarian alliance of activists sprang up. The state's higher circles were not about to yield their plunder and restore property to their victims at the first sign of opposition. 
The first counterattack came from anti-principles already planted by the corrupt intellectual caste. Defeatism, retreatism, minarchy, collaborationism, gradualism, monocentris, and reformism, including accepting state office to, quote, improve statism. All of these anti-principles, deviations, heresies, self-destructive contradictory tenets, etc., will be dealt with later. The worst of all is partyarchy, the anti-concept of pursuing libertarian ends through statist means, especially political parties. A libertarian party was the second counterattack of the state unleashed on the fledgling libertarians, first as a ludicrous oxymoron, then as an invading army. The third counterattack was an attempt by one of the ten richest capitalists in the United States to buy the major libertarian institutions, not just the party, and run the movement as other plutocrats run all the other political parties in capitalist states. The degree of success those statist counterattacks had in corrupting libertarianism led to a splintering of the movement's left and the despairing paralyzation of others. As disillusionment grew with libertarianism, the disillusioned sought answers to this new problem, the state within as well as the state without. How do we avoid being used by the state and its power elite? That is, they asked, how can we avoid deviations from the path of liberty when we know there are more than one? The market has many paths to production and consumption of a product, and none of them are perfectly predictable. So even if one tells us how to get from here, statism, to there, liberty, how do we know that's the best way? Already, some are dredging up the old strategies of movements long dead with other goals. New paths are indeed being offered, back to the state. Betrayal, inadvertent or planned, continues. It need not. While no one can predict the sequence of steps which will unerringly achieve a free society for free-willed individuals, one can eliminate in one slash all those which will not advance liberty, and applying the principles of the market unwaveringly will map out to a terrain to travel. There is no one way, one straight-line graph to liberty, to be sure. But there is a family of graphs, a space filled with lines, which will take the libertarian to his goal of the free society, and that space can be described. Once the goal is fixed and the paths discovered, only the action of the individual to go from here to there remains. Above all else, this manifesto calls for that action. Well, hopefully that gives you some indication of the discomfort which Konkin felt in applying and using that libertarian label as much as it's been dirtied over the years by various different splits and schisms and different people applying it in very different ways, as I think all thinkers who use or have some relationship with that label libertarian are probably equally uncomfortable with that word and all of the association and baggage that comes with it. But from that, at least we can derive that what Konkin de uh, defines as the core sort of libertarian principle, which is initiatory violence or its threat, coercion, is wrong, immoral, evil, bad, supremely impractical, etc., and is forbidden. Nothing else is. That is, of course, a very core ethical principle that, again, is the type of key moral injunctions that we teach our children from the earliest age. Don't don't steal a toy from your friend. Don't hit your friend. These types of basic moral precepts stem ultimately from this, which, of course, we can identify as the non-aggression principle. And it's one that, I, again, most people, when presented with it, in de decontextified from all the ideological baggage of words like libertarian, will agree to that as a moral principle. But it is also self-evidently not a totalizing moral philosophy, let alone a prescription for economic or political or civil action and how we should live our lives. Obviously, it's quite specifically not that, and not intended to be that. So, in order to have some indication of how to proceed towards the creation of a free society, free from immoral coercion, uh, we, need, we need more to it than just that, just to that core principle. So, what we're sitting on right now is a stool with one leg. We need another, at least another leg to this stool. So, that other leg, of course, is the counter-economic practice mentioned 
in that definition of agorism, which was presented earlier. Agorism is the consistent integration of libertarian theory with counter-economic practice. Of course, this leads to the problem of definition once again. Well, what is counter-economic practice? What does that mean? Again, fret not, there is a, an answer provided, well, again, throughout Konkin's work, but uh, specifically, let's hone in on the Agorist Primer, uh, specifically Chapter 3, entitled Counter Economics, which begins, we'll just read the first opening paragraphs here, quote, We see that nearly every action is regulated, taxed, prohibited, or subsidized. Much of this statism, for it is only the state that wields such power, is so contradictory that little get, ever gets done. If you cannot obey the state's laws and charge less than, more than, or the same as your competitor, and that was a concept that Konkin outlined in the previous chapter, what do you do? You go out of business or you break the law? Suppose paying your taxes would drive you out of business. You go out of business or you break the law. Government laws have no intrinsic relationship with right and wrong or good and evil. Historically, most people knew that the royal edicts were for the king's good, not theirs. People went along with the king because the alternatives looked worse. This line of thinking leads to chapter 5, so we'll just note here that even today, society recognizes the conscientious objector, the religious dissenter to laws that his deity forbids him to obey, the man or woman who follows the law of God or nature against the monopoly of force in society. Since they would rather die than submit, a society which restrains its government from heavy repression will exempt many objectors. But everyone is a resistor to the extent that he survives in a society where laws control everything and give contradictory orders. All non-coercive human action committed in defiance of the state constitutes the counter-economy. For ease of later analysis, we exclude murder and theft, which are done with the disapproval of the state. Since taxation and war encompass nearly all cases of theft and murder, the few independent acts really should be classified as other forms of statism. Since anything the state does not license or approve of is forbidden or prohibited, there are no third possibilities. A counter-economist is, one, anyone practicing a counter-economic act, and two, one who studies such acts. Counter-economics is, the one, practice, and two, study of counter-economic acts. End quote. All right, now we're getting somewhere. The counter-economy is all non-coercive human action committed in defiance of the state. All right, well, that needs some more elaboration, obviously, more on which in a little bit, but I think our stool still is a bit wobbly. It needs a third leg. We have the theory, libertarian theory as defined above. We have the practice, the counter-economics, just outlined in that uh, chapter, uh, and which, by the way, continues on from that point. Again, please read it in your own time. But as Konkin stresses... These theory and practice are useless without each other. The third leg is the consistent application of the practice in line with the theory. And this is not a trivial point. If we do not follow this principle, the, that it is the combination of theory and practice, neither on its own, but the two in combination, if we do not follow that core principle, we can be steered down some very wrong roads to a very dead end. And this was a point that I think was articulated quite well in a debate in 1985 between Sam Konkin and Reason Magazine founder and editor Robert Poole. Let's say we won, okay? Everybody in the world now called himself libertarian. Mao Zedong or his successor, Deng Xiaoping or whoever, was called himself libertarian. You know, this has already begun to happen in California. We, I can show cases where Ronald Reagan called himself a libertarian. Jerry Brown called himself a libertarian. Um, you know, I mean, we've gotten presidents uh, uh, who have now the, the, the L word in their past. And, and, and how far are we going to go? So everybody calls himself a libertarian. So definition one is, is fulfilled. We have libertarian fascists, libertarian uh, communists, you know, libertarian uh, mass executioners, libertarian, you know, Mansonites or whatever, libertarian pacifists. And, and uh, so we've won, right? Libertarian is now everywhere, and the word is accepted, and no problem, right? Libertarian government garbage collectors, uh, uh, whatever, libertarian. Uh, and of course, the, the ultimate nightmare, which I've described in a few pamphlets, for those few of you who don't remember it, the, the idea of a libertarian working his way through the system, who arrests one of us counter-economists, one of us people actually go and break laws and things, 
because we don't believe in the government. And uh, he takes us in front of a libertarian who works his way through the system as a judge. And he takes us in front of a libertarian, you know, he sentences us, and a libertarian working his way through the bailiff takes us to the jail where a libertarian working his way through the system as a turnkey uh, holds us prisoner until eventually the libertarian working his way through the system as the court uh, or the prison uh, priest brings us up to the, uh, the, the electric chair where a libertarian working his way through the system as a state technician is making sure it's in good working order. And a libertarian working his way through the system as a burly guard slaps us down on the chair and another libertarian working his way through the system as an executioner throws a switch and, and uh, wipes out the, the one person who is in fact a libertarian not working his way through the system. <laughs> this is therefore, I think, the distinction that I'm trying to draw. As Sam, I think, effectively outlines in that clip, those who live merely in lip service to the idea of freedom as some sort of theoretical and abstract concept, while in fact living in service of the government, living and working in service of the government, an institution that by its very nature, by its very definition, abrogates that fundamental core principle prohibiting the initiative, initiatory use of violence or coercion, are only inevitably going to end in the furthering, the perpetuation of statism and its immoral coercion itself. So clearly we have to marry the theory with actual practice in order to arrive at that goal of the Agora, the free society. And the only way to counteract and undermine the state is obviously to participate in those actions that undermine it, i.e. counter-economics. So counter-economics, I understand, it sounds intimidating, it sounds learned and theoretical and philosophical, and it sounds like something that's just an abstract idea that we would have to somehow build up from scratch. Here is the good news for today's episode. I am here to tell you that the counter-economy already exists, and I am willing to bet that Every single person listening to my voice right now has already participated in it at some point in their life, to some degree. Uh, have you ever broken the speed limit while in the performance of your uh, job duties? Have you ever held a yard sale and forgotten to withhold the appropriate sales taxes? Have you ever done work under the table? Have you ever forgotten to keep a proper record of that cash gift that your family gave you and uh, uh, in accordance with in tapering inheritance tax laws, so just in case they don't die in the next seven years, or any of the other million and a half little injunctions that we're uh, supposed to be living by, but most people don't even know exist, let alone care to follow them. Uh, well then, yes, congratulations, you are part of the counter-economy. Of course, every one of us breaks any number of statutes and laws that are on the books every single day, usually without even knowing that those take place. And let's keep in mind that the Agora is not just a marketplace. This is not just about economic transaction. The counter-economy includes all forms of non-coercive human action undertaken in defiance of the state. For example, everyone's heard of those lists of ridiculous laws that are on the books, and, uh, well, you, you can look them up, but for example, did you know in Iowa that kissing for more than five minutes in public is, in fact, illegal? Do you know that uh, in Oregon it is illegal to lie down in a public restroom, or uh, that it is illegal for a man to be sexually aroused in public in both South Dakota and Indiana, or... Dozens and dozens and dozens of other stupid laws that people can point to that, yes, I mean, you're probably not going to be arrested for them, but you are technically engaging in the counter-economy. You are helping to expand the space of the Agora every time you engage in those types of acts, because they are in defiance of the state. Now, let's bring this back down to something tangible. How is this revolutionary? And... I think that's a good question to ask, because quite obviously, if this type of counter-economic activity is done as it usually is in an unthinking, in a haphazard way, uh, i.e. divorced from any actual underlying theory and without any specific goal, it isn't really revolutionary at all. But when it is engaged in, in the knowledge of the theory that underlies it, I think this is a truly revolutionary act, i.e. the act of exercising one's own freedom and demonstrating to others around that such freedom exists, which is, I think, a goal in and of itself, and one that feeds on itself. And I think we are in that space of a revolutionary moment where there is 
a great expanding of the Agora that is happening even as we speak. No job, a Prius, and the will to succeed. For Riaz, the owner of Agora Cab, a Manchester, New Hampshire-based ride service, that was enough to become one of the city's hottest new businesses. And the best part? You can pay in Bitcoin. In fact, a good chunk of Riaz's business comes from the digital cryptocurrency. If Agora Cab's success teaches us anything, it's that anyone can create opportunity. Uber, Lyft, and Sidecar, they're all part of the ride-sharing economy so loved by urban-dwelling millennials and distrusted by democratic politicians, taxicab unions, and salon.com headline riders. Yeah, I mean, it seems like more money because um, they don't take taxes out, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, oh, like, I don't know. At the end of the day, this is not illegal, what I'm doing. I don't have a chauffeur's license, and I'm currently transporting you for money. Yeah. Technically speaking, but, you know, Uber, Uber just, like, surpasses the laws in every country and mm -hmm. every state. They don't care. Professor, uh, first off, how do you use Bitcoin as a tax haven? Well, uh, Bitcoin has all the uh, necessary qualification for a tax haven. Uh, the jurisdiction where it is found does not impose taxes because it's cyberspace, right? No one imposes taxes in cyberspace. And second, it maintains the anonymity uh, of taxpayers. Uh, so you can basically use Bitcoin uh, to hide your profits from the IRS if you choose to do so. Um, and this is how you uh, evade taxes using Bitcoins. So, um, wait, so, uh, so hang on. So anybody who has a Bitcoin right now is not paying taxes on their profits? No, I think most people prefer to comply uh, with tax rules, or at least I hope so. <laughs> um, uh, but um, if you choose not to do so, currently there is little that the IRS can do in order to come after you. Silk Road, the Amazon of the dark web, has been repaved. As you may remember, the FBI shut it down back in October and its dreaded pirate Roberts was arrested. Now, in true Robin Hood fashion, a new dread dreaded pirate Roberts has emerged, taken hold of the mast, and put the website back up again. Now, Elliot, there have been reports of other websites purporting to be um, the new Silk Road, but this one seems to be pretty legit. So according to one expert, quote, it appears to be run by the same folks that were running it before. They are not going to be able to kill it. It is going to be a game of cat and mouse with the FBI. Right. I mean, there are reviews of people. I mean, as you said, it really is like an Amazon because there's mm -hmm. reviews of people's services. I think it's known principally for being able to buy and sell drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, with the added advantage that it's actually delivered to your door with people's yeah. actually having, you know, certain sellers having reviews and, mm -hmm. you know, nice packaging. It came in good time. No, no issues. <laughs> I mean, just as you would buy buying a book or something, you know, similar from, from Amazon itself. Exactly. In commissions alone, in just two years that Silk Road was up, it made $1.3 billion. Wow. Regardless of the individual instantiations of this idea, it is, I think, doubtless that it is happening right now, enabled by new technologies that are making it easier than ever before to start agoristic enterprises and, in fact, to have access to those enterprises. I think it's extremely important that that's happening right now because, as I say, this is a revolutionary moment. And if all of this sounds familiar to you, well, it should. The real answer is to allow people to interact, transact, barter, share, do all of this directly together without the need for the middlemen, without the need for the overarching systems of control. That is the truly revolutionary idea that we can see in these various other ideas that are springing forth from them. And it doesn't mean those specific examples we were just looking at. Those are just examples. They can come, they can go, they can be changed, they can be altered. But it's the underlying idea itself that is revolutionary, the idea that we can actually communicate directly together in a peer-to-peer -peer network rather than going through centralized servers. Who is that handsome lad? Uh, yes, uh, although the peer-to-peer -peer economy, which of course we did cover in episode 303 of this podcast, is not necessarily fundamentally counter-economic in nature, it generally almost always is, or... Did you really think that every Uber driver and every uh, TaskRabbit task worker and every Airbnb renter are copiously noting every penny they've received from all of their transactions in order to report it to the government? Mm. And you wonder why governments hate 
these forms of businesses, why they love their government-granted monopolies like the taxicabs or what have you that, of course, play ball by their rules. But be that as it may, perhaps even more importantly than the actual activity, divorced of theory, the actual activity that is taking place here is, when married to theory, the fact that this explosion in counter-economic activity is changing people's perception of the necessity of fundamentally immoral government coercion to regulate society, and even what freedom is and what human action can be devoid of the rules and regulations that we are asked to abide by. And I realize that's perhaps a subtle psychological point, but I think that goes much further towards the realm of true revolution than any amount of marching on Washington and demanding more scraps from the master's table ever will. Uh, No, we don't need to demand scraps from the master's table. We've got our own table, thank you very much, and we're going to start a new party over here. And as this party grows and becomes more lively and more people join in and it becomes better and better, the party will gradually shift over to our table. Thank you very much. And the master will suddenly not find themselves in the position of the master anymore, or... Well, not quite that easy. Obviously, the master will become a bit unsettled when they start to see the party starting to drift to the other table to extend this analogy far beyond its breaking point. And so I I trust that the, the revolutionary nature of this does not need to be articulated too much. But in case it does, why don't we go back to the New Libertarian Manifesto to listen to how Konkin articulates the process, a process, a process, by which society can move from phase zero, non-agorist, statist society, to phase four, a agorist, stateless society. Obviously, there is a transition that takes place there, and it will not always look exactly the same, but we are on some level and in some stage towards moving towards an agorist society and an understanding of a free society, an agora. And where are we? Well, let's take a listen and see what you think. Phase zero. Zero density agorist society. In this phase, most of human history, no agorists exist. Only scattered libertarians or proto-libertarians thinking and practicing counter-economics. The moment someone reads this manifesto and wishes to apply it, we have moved to the next phase. All that can be done in phase zero is the slow evolution of consciousness, hidden misdevelopment, and a lot of frustrating dichotomies. Until you, the first agorist in a phase zero situation, have added to your number, your only strategy can be to increase your numbers, as well as to live counter-economically yourself. The best form of organization is a libertarian alliance in which you steer the members from political activity where they have blindly gone seeking relief from oppression, and focus on education, publicity, recruitment, and perhaps some anti-political campaigning, i.e. vote for nobody, none of the above, boycott the ballot, don't vote, it only encourages them, etc., in order to publicize the libertarian alternative. A libertarian alliance may take stands on issues agreed upon, but insist on unanimity. Only the most clearly libertarian stands will be taken, and you can always veto a deviationist stance. Always encourage tendencies toward hardcore, that is, consistent positions, and scorn softcore, inconsistent ones. Phase 1. Low-density agorist society. The first counter-economic libertarians appear in this phase, and the first serious splits in the libertarian movement occur. Since few libertarians are very consistent yet, deviationism will run rife and tend to overwhelm activism. Get liberty quick schemes from anarcho-Zionism, running away to a promised land of liberty, to political opportunism will seduce the impatient and sway the incompletely informed. All will fail if, for no other reason, that liberty grows individual by individual. Mass conversion is impossible. There is one exception. Radicalization by statist attack against a collective. Even so, it requires entrepreneurs of liberty to have sufficiently informed the persecuted collective so that they laze coherently libertarianward rather than scatter randomly or, worse, flow into out-of-power statism. 
These crises of statism are spontaneous and predictable, but cannot be caused by moral, consistent libertarians. The strategy of the first new libertarians is to combat anti-principles which strengthen the state and dissipate anarchist energy uselessly. The general strategy outlined previously applies. Get libertarians into counter-economics and get the most active of the agorists to get counter-economists into libertarianism. The proto-new libertarians may work within existing organizations and clubs of libertarians as radical caucuses, ginger groups, or as a libertarian left faction in general. A new libertarian alliance is premature here because it is not yet self-sustaining. What can be successfully built is, under whatever label seems most conducive for recruitment, a movement of the libertarian left. Such a movement is itself a mixed bag of individuals of varying hardness of core, but they are tending or moving towards the ideal of new libertarianism. Even within the movement of the libertarian left, structure should, uh, even within the movement of the libertarian left, structure should be de-emphasized. The most new libertarian will be the most competent to coordinate and plan. Those of the highest understanding and practice of agorism and the greatest zeal for action will naturally direct resources. Each member of the movement of the uh, libertarian left, like each uh, new libertarian ally, spends his or her own resources and decides whether or not to accept a tactician or strategist's advice and planning, as any entrepreneur would do without any informed consultant, with any informed consultant. Some pseudo-political public trappings may be necessary to utilize public forums and media access. Also, most people will not understand your market organization unless you translate it into pseudo-political terminology and back again. At this point, in the latter stages of phase one and with a functioning movement of the libertarian left long enough, large enough, these hardcore dedicated cadre can apply leverage to sway larger groups of semi-converted quasi-libertarians to actually block marginal actions by the state. This is a high expenditure quick gain, but low long-range yield tactic, and it should be rare. It will be covered later. Basically, stave off war and mass extermination of libertarians. Following all of these activities, radicalizing the libertarians and evolving the new libertarian alliance, that is all one can accomplish. Phase 2. Mid-density, small condensation, agorist society. At this point, the statists take notice of agorism. While before, libertarians could be manipulated by one ruling class faction to the detriment of another, a sort of anti-market competition played with ballots and bullets rather than innovation and pricing, they will start to be perceived instead as a threat. Pogroms, mass arrests, may even occur, although that is unlikely. Remember, most agorists are embedded in the rest of society and associated with them are partially converted libertarians and counter-economists. In order to reach this phase, the entire society has been contaminated by agorism to a degree. Thus, it is now possible for the first ghettos or districts of agorists to appear and count on the sympathy of the rest of society to restrain the state from a mass attack. These communities, whether above or below ground, can now sustain the new libertarian alliance. The new libertarian alliance acts as spokesman for the agora with the statist society, using every chance to publicize the superiority of agorist living to statists inhabiting and perhaps argue for tolerance of those with different ways. In this phase, the agorist society is vulnerable to statist regression of the populace. Thus, the agorists, whether visible or not, have a high incentive to at least maintain the present level of libertarian consciousness among the rest of the populace. This being done most expertly by the new libertarian alliance, one way to define who that alliance is at this phase, the new libertarian alliance has its sustenance and its mission. But in addition to defending the agorist subsociety, it can work towards accelerating the next evolutionary step. Phase 3. High Density, Large Condensation, Agorist Society In this phase, the state moves into a series of terminal crises somewhat analogous to the well-known Marxist scenario, but with different causes, in this case, real ones. Fortunately, 
the potential for damage has been drastically decreased by the sapping of the state's resources and corrosion of its authority by the growth of the counter-economy. In fact, as the resources of the economy approach equality between the state and the agora, the state is pushed into crisis. Wars and rampant inflation with depressions and crack-ups become perpetual as the state attempts to redeem its authority. It may be possible to reverse its decline by corrupting the agora with deductive anti-principles, so the new libertarian alliance's first task is clear, to maintain vigilance and purity of thought. In this phase, the new libertarian alliance may no longer hold either label or much of its old form. The most motivated new libertarians will move into the research and development supply for the budding agorist protection and arbitration agencies, and lastly as directors of the protection company syndicates. The situation now approaches revolution, but is still reversible. Again, the new libertarians are in the forefront of maintaining and defending gains to this point, but looking ahead to the next phase. The new libertarian alliance, now just a collective term for the most forward-looking elements, can accelerate the process by discovering and developing the optimal methods of protection and defense, both by word and deed, for their industry, and entrepreneuring its innovations. At this phase transition between three and four, we have the last unleashing of violence by the ruling class of the state to suppress those elements that would bring them to justice for all past state crimes. The state's intellectuals perceive that its authority has failed and all will be lost. Things must be reversed now or ever, or never. The new libertarian alliance must prevent premature awareness of this status or premature action on this awareness. This is the final strategic goal of the new libertarian alliance. When the state unleashes its final wave of suppression and is successfully resisted, this is the definition of revolution. Once realization has occurred that the state no longer can plunder and pay off its parasitical class, the enforcers will switch sides to those better able to pay them, and the state will rapidly implode into a series of pockets of statism in backward areas, if any. Phase 4. Agorist Society with Statist Impurities The collapse of the state leaves only mopping up operations. Since the insurance and protection companies see no state to defend against, the syndicate of allied protectors collapses into competition, and the new libertarian alliance, its support gone, dissolves. Statists apprehended pay restitution, and if they live long enough to discharge their debts, are reintegrated as productive entrepreneurs, their training coming automatically as they work off their debt. And we are home, as in Chapter 2. New libertarianism is taken for granted as the basis of ordinary life, and we tackle the other problems facing mankind. I'll leave it to you to determine for yourself uh, wh where you think we are on that spectrum from phase one, to, from phase zero to phase four. And, well, I mean, I think it depends on your locality. For example, Konkin himself offered the idea that uh, there's much of the world in phase zero, that there are a few countries where you could say we have moved towards phase one. And uh, he believed that in Southern California, in the circles that he moved in, that certain sectors of that society had reached phase two. But I think wherever you situate yourself and your own locality on that spectrum, I'm sure phase three and phase four are still some ways off. But I think we are making progress in that direction through things like the peer-to-peer -peer economy, which again, I think is expanding our access to counter-economic activity all we need, really, is to understand the meaning of that counter-economic activity and to use it and to make it part of a practice that is seeking a certain goal. And when we combine the theory and the practice, well, that is agorism, and that is what we are seeking. Now, obviously, today we've only broached the surface, just, just skimmed a stone off the surface of this concept of agorism. And if you don't have many questions about this, then you probably haven't been paying attention, or maybe you're just a complete expert in this su subject and uh, you have no questions whatsoever. But assuming you do have questions, well, obviously, I will direct you to the show notes for today's episode at CorbettReport.com, where all of the various links and ideas that we've discussed will be linked up there so that you can go and check them out for them yourself. Read the New Libertarian Manifesto. Read uh, the Agorist Primer. Uh, read some of these resources. There's a lot out there. Well, not a lot, but there is stuff out there, and hopefully more and more as people start to rediscover Samuel Edward Conkin III, who, as I say, uh, through an historical injustice, has been 
forgotten to a large extent in our modern era, but hopefully not completely so. And of course, now that we have broached the subject, it is something that we can continue to explore in future editions of this podcast in various ways. So I look forward to you joining me for that endeavor. And until next time, as always, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon. Counter-economics provides immediate gratification for those who abandon statist restraint. Libertarianism rewards the practitioner who follows it with more self-liberation and personal fulfillment than any alternative yet conceived. But only new libertarianism offers reformation of society into a moral working way of life without changing the very nature of man. Utopias may be discarded. At last we have a glimpse of how to remold society to fit man rather than man to fit some society. What more rewarding challenge could be offered? Should you now have chosen the new libertarian path, you may wish to join us in our AAA oath and battle cry, or something like it, and renew yourself with it regularly. We witness to the efficacy of freedom and exult in the intricate beauty of complex voluntary exchange. We demand the right of every ego to maximize its value without limit, save that of another ego. We proclaim the age of the market unbound the natural and proper condition for humanity, wealth in abundance, goals without end or limit, and self-determined meaning for all. Agora. We challenge all who would bind us to show us cause. Failing proof of our aggression, we shatter our fetters. We bring to justice all who have aggressed against any, ever. We restore all who have suffered oppression to their rightful condition. And we destroy forever the monster of the ages, the pseudo-legitimized monopoly of coercion, from our minds and from our society, the protector of aggressors and thwarter of justice. That is, we smash the state. Anarchy. We exert our wills to our personal limits restrained only by consistent morality. We struggle against anti-principles which would sap our wills and combat all who physically challenge us. We rest not, nor waste resources, until the state is smashed and humanity has reached its agorist home. Burning with unflagging desire for justice now and liberty forever, we win. Action. Agora. Anarchy. Action. is brought to you by the Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.